0: Good morning. Happy Father's Day. And on top of all of that, we're worshiping Jesus this morning at camp in t-shirts. Praise God. Not all of us are in t-shirts. It seems like those of you who have been in t-shirts all the time are excited to actually put on a little something-something. But those of us who are always wearing that are excited to be in t-shirts right now. Uh, This is... um, this is the start of a great week. It's the very first week where a lot of you who are going to be here for a while, you swing into action. And praise God for what's coming your way, how your character is going to be shaped. But no matter how intense it may get, no matter how insightful the D groups may become, n- none of these experiences at all are going to in any way compare to the greatest shaping experience of your life and it's the reason that we're gathered together here it's jesus and his call for you and one of the classic passages of jesus calling you with a universal call that is fully applicable to all is in luke 9 turn over there with me please There are other passages in the Bible, as Gabe even said, you know, he thinks a lot and he can find gray areas. And I I do that as well, especially with the Bible, and especially if there's a way for me to wriggle out of commitment that Jesus has made rather clear, well, I'm happy to wriggle out of that. And so, for example, in Mark 1, where you have the call of the first disciples to come follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And I think, well, yeah, that's, that's all pretty cool, but... They were apostles. So come on, you know, there's that apostle realm. And then, there, then there's, well, in Luke 9, where we pick this up, he's already chosen the 12 apostles. And now this is the basic call of expectation of Jesus as he lays out what it is to really follow him. Pray with me and we'll look at Luke 9 starting in verse 57. Oh, Father, I beg you, God, please, that we can all encounter Jesus through these scriptures this morning. That we recognize that this is not theoretical or academic. This is not arcane words on a page, but this is the timeless breathing of the Holy Spirit springing to life before our very eyes to be able to grab us by the heart and help us to see Jesus and to see the glory that he has laid out for us in the path before us. Yeah. Oh, please, God, help us to see it as you would have us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, Luke nine fifty-seven. Here we go. As they were traveling along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds of the air have nests, But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, First, Lord, let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I have two points today. My first is, you have been called higher. There is an extremely high call associated with the very powerful word off of Jesus' lips, follow, follow me as he lays this out. This is no general idea, this is a very technical idea. One that would be understood in a word that the pictures that would flow through your mind if you were there in the first century, hearing this word, as technical as it is, would spring to life everything very quickly that would be associated with it. It, Again, follow today could be a very general idea, but at this time, it took on something very, very clear and specific. So for example, uh, when, when I was uh, in college, just down the road here at University of Pennsylvania, I had someone stand in my path and they asked, would you like to pledge this fraternity? And as soon as I heard the word pledge, in an instant, because it's such a technical word, in an instant I could run through in the movie of my mind everything that was expected of me, how I would have to rearrange my life and be able to evaluate oddly in about two or three seconds whether this is something that I would pursue or not. That's the value of having a very technical word at hand here. Also, perhaps if you're uh, a bit older and, and you're walking down the mall and you, you pass a, uh, you know, perhaps a, 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 a military uh, kiosk in the mall and a fellow steps out from behind it, And he says to you, enlist. In that one word, suddenly you can start to make calculations in your mind that are taking only nanoseconds, but you can understand the depth of what is being asked of you, expected of you. Can you rearrange your entire life? Are you willing to head all across sea and land to do the bidding of of, of whatever this military be, be requiring of you? All of that, would suddenly spring to life. The word follow in the first century had that very same idea. And it was a high call, the highest call, when it came off of the lips of none other than Jesus Christ. But in a general sense, if there was a rabbi that came upon you as you were going about your daily chores, whatever they might be, and he said to you, and in, in the, the word here in our Greek is akalatheo. And if you heard akalatheo, or follow me, in an instant you would understand what was being asked of you. And here's what it was, because we have volumes of information on this from the uh, others writing about what it is to be called. Number one, the expectation was you would rearrange your life To spend as much time with that rabbi or that master to be able to imitate their life as precisely as possible. There are some humorous texts from rabbinical writings of watching a group of disciples following a rabbi, and while the the rabbi was quite aged and had the effects of osteoporosis upon him, where he was a bit bent over, and yet these are are young men in their teens that are being called in this group to be able to follow him, but because they so precisely wanted to imitate him that as he walked over, you know, hunched over in this way, here are these, you know, strapping young men, likewise, walking all around in this exact same way. So earnest were they to walk exactly as he walked. But when Jesus calls us, his call to us is, are we trying with all that we have, to see through his eyes, not just what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus think? How would Jesus make sense of this situation? How would Jesus act, given the circumstances that are laid out before us here? That's the first priority of follow me. Are you willing to not just think about, but actually live out following Jesus in that way, in in the way that you comport your life or, or live your life? Secondly, it was to learn that rabbi's teachings. And I mean learn it cold. This is, this is 1600 SAT type learning that you're going to go after in, in this regard. This is you knowing it so well, everything that he taught, that even as the words are about to come off, you could finish the words, but also that you would know it so well, not that you could recite it, But here is what was expected. This is part of this second aspect of following. You would know it so well that you could teach it to others. And you know, even as you sit here right now and you think, yeah, you know what? I'm going to try to learn this lesson. That would be great. But you know if you sat down and it was your expectation that when your campers came that you'd have to give this lesson as close as possible as soon as they arrived. You know that your engagement with the teaching, would be that much different. That's the type of engagement in the teaching that comes with Akalatheia, with follow me, with this higher call that is your higher call. Ah, but I'm just a kid. My parents are at church here and that's why. Yours too. Exactly that. But then thirdly, this aspect of, of following that was expected Again, the picture would flow in your mind the minute you heard the word hit your ears from the rabbi and it was this, that you would then go and help as many as possible learn these teachings. So you imitate that rabbi as closely as possible. You learn his teachings so well that you can teach others. And lastly, you make sure that others are taught this and that you pay it forward. And the chain goes on and on and on. And so, to say that, well, yeah, I follow Jesus, whoa, that's the most radical thing that you could say. It is that much of a high call. And even when this man would say, "Ah, I'm going to follow you. Jesus like, really? You need to consider the weight of those words. I'm going to follow you. It's not about zeal. You understand the depth of what goes into following any rabbi. This rabbi is homeless. This rabbi is a revolutionary. This rabbi is going to lay down his life. Yeah. And we are called by this rabbi. Our call is so high, as a matter of fact, that, by the way, when the one man is called, follow me, and he gives an excuse, a pretty good excuse, let me go you know, bury my father. Jesus answers the excuse and then restates the call. Again, the call, follow me. The excuse, let me go bury my father. The call is, re- the, the excuse is, is, is um, addressed, let the dead bury their own dead, and then the call is reiterated. This time it's reiterated as, but as for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What is part and parcel of follow me? It's that third aspect of follow me, is that you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. If in any way you have self-justified that discipleship is just contemplating Jesus, having a vibrant prayer life, but never being part of the process of changing the world, you're not following Jesus. Because the one part that he even self-defines in this passage, by reiterating what it means to follow him, is to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Those are parallel statements here, and it's for sure a huge subset of what it is to follow him. High call indeed. But then another man says to him, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Now, these words, if you're a Jew and you're hearing this, as would have been those listening to Luke, you're you're hearing these words, and you would have in no way mistaken that this is a flashback moment. Something is being reprised, a story from the Old Testament, with these words, because it's oddly, not oddly, but not coincidentally, the very same words of discipleship that were uttered in the Old Testament. And, and, And when was that? And where was that? It was in 1 Kings 19. And it was when the great prophet Elijah fresh from having had the showdown with the prophets of Baal and Asherah at Mount Carmel. 450 of them and 450 of the the others all put to shame by the power of God and his faith in that God. And then it was his turn to hand this off and go up in a chariot of fire to heaven. And now came his call. Think how great that call was. This is the prophet who takes his cloak, the very cloak that he wore as he called down fire from heaven. to to take out the sacrifice, to show all of the people that God is alive and true, this same prophet, as he takes his cloak of discipleship and puts it onto the shoulders of Elisha, and Elisha says the exact same words to him, I will follow you, let me first go back and say goodbye to my family. Now here's what's remarkable, is in 1 Kings 19, when Elijah hears this from Elisha, in this classic "follow me" moment, he says to him, "Hey, you know what? What, what am I to you to, to keep you from that? Go ahead and do so." Now, here's what's amazing: Jesus, when when heard with this, is is actually recognizing that our call is so much higher, higher than Elisha's. That, no, 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 That might have been fine for Elisha, but what we have at hand is so much more critical, so much more urgent, so much more important. We are now in a covenant where we're going to be able to allow people to know the Lord and be reborn to new life where the Holy Spirit now will not just come upon them temporarily as He might have in the Old Testament. Now the Holy Spirit will cause them from within to be reborn to new life. What you're about to do is so much higher that no, don't go, don't go back. You need to get on it right here and right now. This is remarkable. And as a matter of fact, it's reiterated a couple chapters earlier in Luke when Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. He says, you know, John the Baptist, of all those born of women, including Elijah, including Elisha, none is greater than John the Baptist. But whoever of you that are going to be in this new covenant, this new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven... You who are going to be part of this amazing process of making disciples, baptizing them, helping them to be born of water and spirit, that you get to change the eternal course of someone, this is your task. You are greater than even John the Baptist. This is not me up here, you know, with kind of my own, like, kind of rah rah demagogue propaganda. These are, these, these are the very words of scripture. And to say that we're anything like, oh, shucks, not me. Maybe, maybe you know, that guy over there, because, you know, he leads songs. Maybe he's going to be. No, you as well. And to, to say anything else is not humility. It is false humility. And it is not to surrender your will. Because there's a lack of surrender when we say, oh, shucks, not me. Because it's basically saying, no, I, I don't want to be called that high. But there's no other choice. We're called to something this high. How, how high was this call to Elisha? Now, Elisha... Kids don't name their kids Elisha. They name them Elijah all the time. <laughs> Elijah gets like 10 times the press of Elisha. Well, he did not have that sweet showdown. I mean, you know, let's be real about that. But Elisha, he did like 10 times the miracles. I mean, I know he says he had a double portion of his spirit. but But, I mean, Elisha... After receiving the cloak of Elijah, watches a fire chariot come down from heaven in a whirlwind. Think of just a whirlwind by itself. You'd be freaked out beyond words and it would be posted all over your Facebook page and everybody would be like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you captured that. Well, now how about if that whirlwind didn't just have some leaves in it to make it visible to you, but it was made of fire. and Oh, and it was because of chariots inside of it that was causing it. And then the guy who discipled you or the gal who discipled you suddenly was like, hey, this is my ride. Hey, you know what? You got this. You got this. And that's, that's the beginning of your walk. And then where does he go from there? The, you know, the next thing, he comes upon a town with no water. Last year at camp, we had no water for a little bit. We were like, oh, what are we going to do? There's no water in the town. And the first thing that Elisha does is, he takes a little, like, salt and stuff, but he he cures the water for this entire town. And then, as he walks away from that, a couple guys or young young guys are mocking him for something that is actually incredibly amazing. They call him a baldy. (laughs) What is that? They don't even realize that they're complimenting him in the process. Apparently, so he's like, uh, you know what? Bears take care of this. I got something to do, and and so the bears do. And then and then right after that, the armies of of Israel and Judah together are about to perish because they're marching around for seven days in the desert. De- Deb and I have been to this desert. It is a moonscape. I mean, there is. It, it, it really is dry, ominous. And they, they're like, hey, can we, can we get a prophet? And Jehoshaphat, who's somewhat of a righteous king, is like, all right, you know what? You got all your prophets. They ain't nothing. Can, can we get like a real prophet? And so Elisha arrives. And he tells them, here's what you do. Dig a bunch of trenches. Even though this is dry as a bone, dig a bunch of trenches. And They do. And the next morning when they wake up, all those trenches are filled with water. And all the animals that are about to die and all of them, the army itself that were despairing of, of hydration, they all are completely replenished by that great work of Elisha. And then by the way when the sun rises off of those trenches and it looks like bloody water the Moabites are completely confused by it thinking it was the Ju- the uh, uh, the Judah army versus the Israel army that fought themselves and Moab marches right into the middle of it thinking that they're going to con- have conquest only to be torn down right at that moment. And then right after that he comes upon this widow whose husband was a prophet left her bankrupt and in debt and the ta- the the, the uh, uh, the man who was their creditor was about to come and take her two boys, two like uh, elementary school boys. all she had left, her husband just died, and she's wait. And and he said, "What do you got?" So "I got this little bit of oil." And he tells her to go get go get jars from the entire town. And she and her sons get jars from the entire town. They fill up. Not only does she pay off the debt, her sons don't get taken away from her into uh, into a slavery. But now she's independently wealthy with all the oil she sells. And she lives on it for the rest of her life. Then, she, then he comes upon another widow right after that. She has no son. Right, so she, She's not a widow. She, she actually is a, 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 a wife who has no son. And she's grieving for this. And he's like, right, I'm going to get you a son. She's like, are you sure? I don't know. I don't, this is too much for me. And then I'm going to get you a son. And, and sure enough, she's pregnant. A year later, she has a son. But then that son, after he grows up a little bit, has some sort of thing going on with his head. And he's like, my head, my head. And he dies.
1: She's like, oh,
0: why did you give me that son? It's all like even worse now. And he's like, that's all right, I got this. And he comes and, he, and that's where he kind of has this cool thing where he like lays over the boy and he prays to the God. And he walks around the room and he tries it again. And, and the sun comes back to life. What in the world? Elisha's got it going on. After that, he, he goes and he hangs out with a bunch of, it's like a single brother's household, but they're all prophets. And in the single brother's household, it's kind of that way. In the single brother's household, they make a big pot of stew. And I don't know if you've ever been to a single brother's household where they cook, but as soon as the, the stew is done and they go to taste it, they say something that you hear a lot of times when you serve a meal and the single brothers make it. There's death in this pot! There is death in this pot! And he realizes they didn't get the recipe right, so he takes some flour, throws it in like, Oh, okay, this is much better now. Thank you very much. And then after he makes sure they're fed, he comes upon 100 people that have no food He feeds the hundred with just a little bit of food, kind of a precursor to the great things Jesus would do. And it's the feeding of the 100. As if that's not enough, the commander of the Aramean army, Naaman himself, comes into town with all of his bling and regalia. It's kind of like 10 black Cadillacs with bulletproof windows showing up right by Elisha's house. And like, Elisha, I think you want to check this out. He's like, nah, it's all right. I'm going to just send you Go tell him, go dip seven times in the Jordan. He'll be all right. And, uh, and, and you know, Naaman's like, what? He didn't even come out here. I didn't come out and wave his hand over me, say something impressive. What? And, and finally Naaman you know, humbles out. And, and Elisha's advice is exactly right. He comes out. He's a brand new, you know, skin like a little boy uh, coming on out. How amazing is that? After that, some guys are you know, chopping wood with an ax. And, and as they chop the wood, the ax head falls into the, the lake. An ax head. They're like, oh, it was borrowed. Can you help me out here, Elisha? You know, Elisha's not afraid to do, like, these great things. And he's like, you know, he's helping you out with, like, your, your utensils as well. And he's like, all right. He throws a stick in the lake. And then all of a sudden there's an axe head bobbing on the lake. He's like, Elisha, man, you're the man. Thank you very much. And he goes back with it. But the Arameans, the great superpower that's on the rise coming in, they're like, you know what? There's some dude down in Israel. And it's as though he's a spy. And you know what? We're going to take this guy out. Like, who is this guy? Elisha. And so the entire army is not against the nation. They're against Elisha alone. And they, and they come, and, and Elisha's assistant is like, uh, Hamana, Hamana, Hamana. There's an entire army against us. And Elisha's like, look, come on. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. Open your eyes, and see the real power of the Lord. And, and his assistant's are like, whoa, I think I got goosebumps even just thinking of this just now. I'm like, whoa, wait, what is it? And, and he vanquishes the entire army. They're all blind and groping around. And Elisha's kind of like walking through them as they're blind. And he's like, hey, what's going on, guys? They're like, uh, we're blind. We need to find our way home. And he's like, yeah, hey, why don't you try this road over here? And he just, you know, cools the cucumber, walks on back after that. <laughs> And then one of the worst things that happens, the big capital city there in the north of Israel is under a siege, so much so that parents, and this is a good, you know, kind of happy Father's Day moment, but parents are eating their children. <laughs> like, who would ever think of, that would come to that? And, and Elisha's like, you know what, God, God, God is going to be faithful to you if you're faithful to him. At this time tomorrow, you'll have more than you could ever imagine. And he uses four unlikely lepers to go out and realize that God had scared away the whole Aramean army and they left all their food just outside the gates of that city. And just as Elisha predicted, if you could just hang on tomorrow at this time, you're going to have a banquet that you could have never imagined. I, just, I mean, he goes on, he goes on to, to anoint Jehu, the, you know, the wild riding prophet and Heziel. I mean, he does so many great things, but here's the deal. Your call is higher than everything I just described. Not me. Yes! Your call is higher than that. And if you have set your sights at something other than the place where Jesus has set it, you are doing it on your own accord. You are rewriting God's destiny for you. But the reason that you might be doing it is because maybe you're unwilling to give up what Elisha gave up. Because this phrase here, when it says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of heaven. This is not talking about, hey, You know, when you plow a field, make sure you look straight ahead because if you look back, you might turn and, you know, some of the rows might be uneven. You probably even discussed it in that way. That's not what this is talking about. This is not talking about if you ride your bicycle down the street, don't look back because, you know, you'll end up hitting a curb and you'll have a boo-boo and mom's going to hook you up. It's not about anything like that. When Elisha was called in 1 Kings 19 and Elijah came and put his cloak over him, Elisha was a man who had a little something-something. He was driving 12 pair of oxen. Is that right? Oxes, oxen, meson, moosen, oxen, oxen. So 12 pair of oxen. And he was in the 12 pair itself. What kind of a farm agricultural center do you have that you require 12 pair, 24 oxen, 24 plows? He's a man of some means. Yeah. And when, when a, Elijah comes up to him, do you know what he does? He doesn't say, okay, well, let me, let me make sure then that I'm keeping my eyes straight. No, he takes all the oxen and he slaughters them to the Lord. Right. And then he gives the food to all the people that he employed so they had a little something before they were all dismissed. And then he takes the plows, the very plow that he was using, And it's not as though he put his hand back on it. He lit a fire. His discipleship began with an act of arson. And, But the reason he was able to heed the call and do all that he did is because he was willing to give it all up so thoroughly. And my second quick point is just simply that. Number one, your call is higher. But number two, but it begins with a fire. Are you willing to get out the blowtorch, a little can of gasoline, and set what you in your self-sufficiency, you in your self-reliance, have come to depend on? I bet you don't have as much as he had. I bet you don't have a bunch of people depending on you for employment. Bet you don't have some huge bread of a farm that is actually providing the means by which maybe an entire village eats. What have you got? For most of us, it's a reputation. But if you're not willing to commit an act of arson on your reputation, then you'll never know what it is to be called higher. And and yes, is this a call to count the cost? It is exactly a call for you to count the cost. Can I set fire to this right now? Like those folks in Ephesus who set fire to $5 million worth of nasty scrolls before they went and were able with joy, unbridled joy, unfettered commitment now to Jesus to go and serve the Lord do you want to take it higher? You need to count the cost. But you also need to count the costs of not setting fire to this. And having a life of half-hearted discipleship. Having one foot in your world and one foot in the kingdom of God. Kidding yourself that you're really serving. Only to try to serve in such a way to enhance your reputation only when you're there. It's going to be a life of misery. I've had seasons of my life where I've tried to do it that way. And trust me, it comes to nothing. And praise God we have a God who is so gracious to us that he'll keep helping us by putting people in our lives, putting messages like this in your life, to refine you and to recognize, no, this is something that needs to have a fire burn it up. I am going to give God ashes and he's going to give me glory. Put your nasty little ambition, reputation, ideas to the fire and the ugliness of those ashes are going to be traded in for a crown of gold and a life of adventure. Persecution, sure, but at least you'll be living and making a difference. And the difference that you make by simply helping one person come to know God, to be reborn of Jesus' blood, of the Holy Spirit and water. For, For that to happen, that is of greater worth among the angels than any Aramean army being vanquished, than any axe head being recovered, than any stew finally tasting better, than any glorious acts that Elisha could have done. And it will all be, once you get the perspective of heaven, all be to such a greater glory. All this awaits you. Don't in any way discount it at all because you do so at your peril of having changed the scriptures to meet your own wants. But in the bottom line of it all, if that's where you want to go, it's time to recognize, time to set fire to self. This is a good week to do it. And to realize, wow, once I've extinguished self, there's nothing I can't do. There's nothing that I can't be used for. There's no limits to what God can be able to do. And so, amen, God gives us a bit of a spiritual discipline at camp here of going after it with complete selflessness and realizing some small way within the microcosm of camp of what greater things we'll be able to do, what higher call it really is that we have. But don't let it stop here. Let it be the trajectory of your entire life. That the, the greater the fire, the greater the glory that comes because you've been called higher.